0: Well, last week I told you about Biosphere 2. Remember that? The uh, enclosure, it's an airtight enclosure, about three acres uh, big, full of uh, 3,800 species of plants and animals. And the whole idea with this airtight enclosure, built uh, in Arizona, in the deserts of Arizona, is to see whether human beings could live and thrive in this uh, enclosed environment... Uh, irrespective of what was happening around them. So, four men and four women entered, and they stayed in there for a full two years. And the system was supposed to produce enough water and food and oxygen, and uh, all went well uh, at first. Um, A question was raised at some point, under what circumstances would it be legitimate for anyone in the biosphere to leave? or to leave and then return. Well, uh, the conclusion was that if a circumstance arose, it would become clear, management would step in and give permission, the people could make a decision for themselves, this wasn't prison after all, and if they needed to leave, um, the decision would be made at the time. So in some respects, this this experiment was very successful. Um, The farming managed to produce enough food, the water cycle managed to produce enough water, the plants managed to produce enough oxygen, Um, at first. But after a few months, some unpredictable factors began to make the biospherians increasingly uh, concerned as the environment became a little bit more inhospitable. Something wasn't right. All of the insects that had been introduced to pollinate the crops had died out. So this affected crop growth. Um, Eventually, the smaller and then larger vertebrates started to die as well, including the the dwarf pigs and the goats and the chickens. Uh, Of course, the cockroaches, which had been introduced to recycle organic material, they flourished and became a plague, an infestation. The problem eventually, they realized, was that there was too much carbon dioxide in the system, too little oxygen. The the plant growth had not happened predictably because of uh, more overcast days than they had expected in Arizona and so now the plants were not getting rid of the carbon dioxide and the oxygen had depleted to the point where it was the equivalent of being at um, 13,000 feet. Now normally that wouldn't be a problem because if a human being gradually ascends to 13,000 feet, your body will adapt to the thin air. Same with the animals. But what nobody knew at the time was the reason you adapt is because your body can detect that there's a change in air pressure. So this is why climbers of Mount Everest spend two weeks at base camp and then they they go up a little higher and they spend two weeks there and they allow their bodies to acclimatize because their bodies are figuring out that there's less air pressure so there'll be less air. And so you get that on Mount Everest but you don't get that in Arizona. Geography matters. And so what was happening is they were breathing thinner and thinner air but their bodies had not triggered the adaption because the air pressure was still the same and they started... Uh, to suffocate, in a sense. The original level of O2 was 20.9%, but after 16 months, it had dropped to 14.5%. And so the people in the biosphere, these eight biospherians, they began to have symptoms. Uh, Sleep apnea, where they would just stop breathing while they were sleeping. They became chronically fatigued and lethargic, uh, unable to concentrate, uh, dizzy, And so management that was following all of this uh, was deciding what to do about it. If they interfered in any way, maybe people would consider that a failure of the experiment. Well, to their credit, the eight biospherians just endured. They knew what was happening. They knew they were being poisoned by their own uh, carbon dioxide, but they just endured and trusted management to make the right call. Eventually, management did make the right call and injected oxygen into the system. That happened twice during the experiment. And... um, When the oxygen first came in, the people were described as jumping for joy, giggling and dancing (laughs) because they could finally breathe again. Uh, And journalists journalists at this point started to question whether or not the experiment had been a failure with this influence from management to help the people survive. But people realized, I mean, management wasn't going to let them die. They had endured. They hadn't done anything wrong. And so people sort of backed off. But then there was the pointer finger incident. I don't mean pointer finger, I mean, um, Ms. Jane Pointer chopped off her finger using a a rice threshing machine by accident. She severed her finger, and now there was this decision. Under what circumstance would a person be allowed to leave the biosphere and return, and they didn't want her to leave. They decided to endure, and one of the the doctors in the biosphere um, sewed her finger back on with a needle and thread found in the first aid kit. Well, they soon realized that that wasn't, that wasn't going to work. And so the team was faced with this dilemma. Management left the decision up to Jane Pointer and the team, and they deliberated on what to do, what she would endure this and possibly lose her finger, maybe risk her life from the infection. Or were they... Uh, going to allow her to do the unthinkable and leave the biosphere? What would you do if you were her? Okay, well, more on that later. Uh, In the meantime, turn in the days that the judges ruled Israel to the book of Ruth, chapter 1. And while you're going there, let me pose this question to you. Under what circumstances would you leave the place that God had called you to be? What would it take for you to abandon God's call to the place that he called you to be. Uh, Now, if you're going to Ruth chapter 1, you'll page through the judges, and you'll remember what we saw last week in our introductory sermon, that this happened during the time that the judges ruled Israel, which was a time of moral and spiritual darkness and really anarchy. Uh, The book of Judges tells us over and over that everyone does what is right in their own eyes. In other words, they're not paying attention to the revelation God had given them. In Scripture, they were just doing what they thought was right. Kind of like most of the people in our world are operating today. They just do whatever they feel is right for them. And this led to an increasingly uh, downward spiral of desperation as people became more and more sinful. But in the midst of all of this, We have this snapshot of normality in the book of Ruth. We have this little microcosm of these few characters who, as we shall see as we go through the story, know the word of God, are obeying the word of God, are applying it to their lives, and are being faithful to Yahweh in the midst of this chaos happening around them. And so in a sense, the book of Ruth is this little biosphere, this little encapsulated um, system of faithful obedience. And these people are not experiencing miracles. They're not getting any direct revelation from God like the angels and the visions and the prophecies uh, of the past. They're just ordinary people getting on with their ordinary lives, being faithful to God as best they can. And that's what we saw last week. Let me read for you um, again just the first five verses to reorient ourselves. Part of normal life is tragedy. And that's where our story begins. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab. He and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech. The name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. And they were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah, and they went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabit wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Kilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. And in the next couple of weeks, we're going to examine three responses to God's sovereignty. So that your faith will be bolstered through this. That you'll be able to trust in God's sovereignty in your life. Three different responses. And we're just going to do one this week. Um, That's the first one. You could ignore it. You could ignore God's sovereignty. In a sense, try to escape it as Elimelech does. Secondly, uh, you could acknowledge it, which we will see next week with Naomi. And thirdly, you can trust in it. The way Ruth did, where she put all of her faith in God's sovereignty. So let's look at the first response. Ignore it, like Elimelech. First one says, in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So not only is there this uh, moral distress going on around them, there's actually also this physical challenge as well, this geographical challenge. There's famine. And there's famine in the land. The land being spoken of here is... Israel. This is where the Israelites are. Now, which famine it is uh, doesn't really matter, except we know that it's happening in the time of the judges. Last week we looked at a possible timeline of where Ruth falls, and I mentioned to you Judges 6. So let me just read for you from Judges 6 what's happening at the time just before Gideon. So the king of Moab has been killed by Ehud. Remember the fat king Eglon? Then... Gideon's about to happen in the, in the middle. We, we read this, Judges 6, verse 3. For whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east, which would include the Moabites, would come up against them, and they would encamp against them and devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza, which is way on the west, and leave no sustenance in Israel and no sheep or ox or donkey. So this might be the food shortage that has been spoken about in the book of Ruth. That would make sense. It would fit with the timeline perfectly that the whole country is being affected by this famine. Not necessarily a climatic, you know, it's not climate change that's causing this. It's the, it's the people of the East that are coming in. And just rem- to remind you, if you're not part of our evening service as we're going through the book of Judges, that these nations rising up and coming against Israel is God's will. The point of the book of Judges is there's no king in Israel. Everyone's doing what's right in their own eyes. And so as they sin and they fall into idolatry and they worship the idols, the promise that God made with them through Moses at Sinai kicks in, the covenant. Which if you disobey me, I will punish you until you repent. And so that's what's happening. And you'll see this this cycle or what we've actually called a spiral because of the intensity gets worse and worse as it goes on. But there's this cycle in the book of Judges that says uh, they worship the Baals and the Ashtoreth and you know the pagan gods. And then God raises up or allows foreign nations to invade them and inflict them. And this is a case of it. The, the Midianites, the Amalekites, the people of the east coming in, stealing all their food. And then what happens is that goes on until they can bear it no longer, and the discipline of the Lord is upon them, and they realize that they need help, and they can't do anything themselves. And so they cry out to God in repentance, they turn their back on their idols, they worship the true God, Yahweh, again, and He forgives them, and the way He delivers them from these masses of armies that are always attacking them is by raising up one person. It's known as a judge, a freedom fighter, a revolutionary military leader. He's not a spiritual leader. He is, you know, Rambo. He's the, the one guy that's going up against the army, and he wins um, because he has God on his side. And then what happens is the people have peace, and they worship God, but then they get used to it, and there's no trials, and there's no discipline, and so eventually they want to integrate again with the nations. They start worshiping the idols again, and the whole cycle starts again, rinse and repeat. Right, And the time that they, they bear the punishment goes longer, the time of peace is shorter, and it's a big mess. And that's where we've been finding ourselves in the book of Judges. And tonight we're going to see that again with Jephthah, where things really start going off the rails. So, with that in mind, do you understand why it's bad for Elimelech to leave? He's going to Moab. He's going to the east. He's crossing the Jordan. He's leaving Israel. Bethlehem is near Jerusalem, right in the heart of Israel. And he is taking his family, and they're leaving. He's an He He's old money. He is uh, from the clan of Bethlehem. We looked at that last week. So he's one of the founding fathers, his family. You know, it's like, Uh, William Penn's family in Pennsylvania You know, he's one of the founding families of Bethlehem and he's decided I'm done with Bethlehem, the house of bread that's what Bethlehem means why? because there's no bread and I'm going to go to the east and I'm going to go and join the enemies of God's people because at least they have bread if you can't beat them join them that's why he's going there because of this famine now put yourself in his sandals just for a moment What would you do? Under what circumstances would you leave the place that you believe God had called you to? I mean, here he is. His primary concern is the welfare of his family. You know, every husband and father in here can empathize with that. Before anything else, your primary responsibility is your family. I mean, even in the New Testament, 1 Timothy 5, 8. If a man does not provide for the members of his own household, He's behaving worse than an unbeliever. So Alkana wants to put food on the table for his family there's no food. It doesn't matter that this is his town that he's grown up in that he's been there for generations if everybody dies what's the point? And so what would you do? Wouldn't you leave and go where the job market is more conducive to your field as it were? But we know what's happening. In the book of Judges, and we know that God's about to deliver. We know that He's going to raise up Gideon, but they didn't know that. This has been going on for years, and so the people of Bethlehem have maybe tempted with doubting God's sovereignty. I mean, is God really doing this to us? Remember, this little microcosm here in the biosphere of Bethlehem—they're not doing anything wrong. They're not worshiping the Baals; they're worshiping Yahweh, and yet they are part of the nation. And that's how God treated Israel in at. At Mount Sinai, the whole Jewish nation, the 12 tribes, the descendants of the 12 sons of Jacob, after they came out of Egypt, they made a covenant with God that as a nation, he would bless them if they worshipped him, and as a nation, he would curse them and punish them if they, as a nation, turned aside. What about the pockets of individuals in the nation who were doing the right thing? They were still part of the nation. And so even though they weren't doing anything wrong, they were still subject to the same punishment. And so they've got to be doubting God's goodness here. At least maybe that's what uh, Elimelech is going through. By the way, if I ever say Elkanah, I mean Elimelech. Elkanah is Hannah's husband. I always get those mixed up. But this is Elimelech. And he, he wants to leave. The little people in the little town of Bethlehem, they're getting hungry. Just like the people in the biosphere, you know, all they needed to do is open a window and everything would be fine. But they chose to endure because they were committed to this higher cause and left it up to management. All these people in Bethlehem had to do is kind of open the window and go to Moab and get some bread. But they were enduring, trusting the sovereignty of God that what he was doing was what he wanted for the nation. And they were committed to that even if it killed them. Except for Elimelech. And so Elimelech is resorting to, well, let me ask you this. What do people do in desperate times? What do desperate times call for? Desperate measures. Desperate and disobedient. Now, I want to be clear. This is not like, let's say, a South African moving to the United States. (laughs) This is not like uh, a Mexican looking for work in Texas. It is not wrong for people to move from one country to another. It's not necessarily wrong at all. But what's happening here is a theological statement. If you want, you can turn to Deuteronomy 28. I'll just show to you why this is wrong for them, for Elimelech to do this. Deuteronomy 28. And as you're going there, let me just recap the prom- the, why it's called the Promised Land. Remember, there's, there's no Jews, there's just people, until God calls Abraham. And God made a promise to Abraham. And the promise is, you're going to have a son, Isaac. I'm going to make him a great nation, the Jewish people, through Jacob, his 12 sons, and all of their offspring. And he even tells Abraham, I'm going to take them into Egypt for 400 years where they're going to suffer, and then I'm going to bring them out. So that's all part of the plan. And through this group, this nation, these descendants of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and the 12 tribes... Through you and your family, I will bless all the families of the earth, which is why we can be saved as Gentiles. So that was the plan all along. And part of that promise was not only you're going to have a son, I'm going to make him a great nation. Part of that promise was I'm going to give you and your descendants a slice of real estate, a land. And he tells him where the borders are, and it's the land that we call today Israel and Palestine. They just called it Canaan. That's what it was called at the time. I'm going to take you to Canaan, and I'm going to give you Canaan. What about all the Canaanites that already live there? Don't worry, we'll get to that. (laughs) That is Joshua's problem. I'm going to give this land to your descendants. Yes, there will be blood, but I will eventually give this land to you. That's why it's called the promised land, because it was promised to Abraham and his descendants, and God said it will be a land flowing with milk and honey, not famine and drought. And they agreed to this. So so then the the descendants of of Jacob, remember that. um, They end up going to Egypt because of Joseph. They sold Joseph into slavery. Joseph's there in Egypt. Um, He helps Egypt survive the famine. So they leave the promised land because of a famine. They go to Egypt. They stay with Jacob, uh, uh, Joseph. Jacob comes as well. Benjamin, remember that whole story. And then they have like a zillion kids um, over 400 years or, or until, not over 400 years, sorry, they they have children and they grow into a large nation until the new pharaoh forgets Joseph and makes them all slaves. Then they're slaves for 400 years. Then they come out, they bounce around in the wilderness because of the lack of faith. They all die out. The new generation comes in. Joshua comes, takes the promised land from the Canaanites. And from that point on, the Israelites are in Canaan and it's called Israel and it's the promised land. But before they go in, they're on the plains of Moab looking in, across the Jordan, on, let's say, Mount Nebo, and they, where they can see the whole land. And Deuteronomy 28.5 says this. This is the covenant. If you will not obey the voice of Yahweh your God or be careful to do all these commandments, any statutes that I command you today, Moses says, then all these curses shall come upon you and shall overtake you. Here's a sample of the curses. Verse 20. Yahweh will send on you curses, Confusion and frustration in all that you undertake to do. Failed business ventures. Until you are destroyed and perish quickly on account of the evil of your deeds because you have forsaken me. And Yahweh will make the pestilence stick to you until he has consumed you off the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Verse 22. Yahweh will strike you with wasting disease and with fever, inflammation, and a fiery heat, with drought, with blight, with mildew, and they shall pursue you until you perish. So you see, part of the covenant is the penalty clause. If you obey me, land flowing with milk and honey, and I'm going to bless everything you do. If you disobey me, you don't keep the law, you don't stay Jewish, you start worshiping every, all these other gods, I am going to make life miserable for you in this land until you snap out of it and repent and then the blessing comes back and that's what is happening in the book of Judges and that's what's happening to the people in Bethlehem in Ruth's day in Elimelech's day and go back to Ruth so God promised promised Israel to bring drought and plagues, locusts, crickets famine if they were unfaithful to him and that's what's happening here And Elimelech doesn't want God's curse. So Elimelech says, I'm leaving. Just another footnote to remind you, God called Abraham out of Ur. That wasn't wrong. God called Jacob's 12 sons out of the promised land to Egypt to escape the famine. God told Joseph to take Mary and Jesus out of the promised land to Egypt to escape the violence of the government. It's not wrong to leave the land if God tells you to, if he calls you to. But he had not called anyone to leave Israel. He had told him you need to stay in this land and bear the punishment when it comes. Elimelech's name means my God is king. So he has great theology in his name, but not in his practice. Maybe some of us too, we have great theology in our names as Christians. We are Christians, we are the followers of Christ, but in our practice we don't follow Christ. His name maybe instead of being my God is king should have been Captain Cliché. Because his, his choices are so cliché. When the going gets tough, the tough gets going. The grass is always greener on the other side of the Dead Sea. I mean, he's just, he's just doing what people do when there is no God in their lives. Whatever's practical, whatever's wisest. But look how it works out for him. Verse 3. But Limelech, the husband of Naomi, Died. Leaves her with these two sons. They have wives. They don't have children with these wives. They stay there 10 years. Then verse 5, both Malon and Kilion died. So the woman was left without her two sons, without her husband. If your plan is to escape the judgment of God so that your family survives, a 75% attrition rate is not good odds. It didn't work. Now, why did they die? Think about that for a moment. Don't call out because you might have the wrong answer. They leave God's will, they go to Moab, they end up dying anyway. Why did they die? And your first instinct might be to say, God is judging them for leaving the land. I don't think so. I think they died because it was their time. And if they had stayed in Israel, they would have died. And if they left Israel, they would have died. And no matter what they did, they would have died. Because God had decided which Israelites were going to die during this phase of punishment. And it had to be severe and it had to be a number of people. And God chose who they were. And crossing the river didn't help. Moving out of the hot zone of God's sovereignty didn't save them. They died because it was their time. Psalm 139, verse 16, David says, As a comfort, your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. That is an amazing theological truth that should help you when you have a loved one and you have to decide whether or not to take them off life support, when you get news that someone that's close to you is dying or has died, if you have done something that you feel has led to the death of someone else, how do you move on from that? You know, you hear these stories of people who have driven, backed up the car and killed their own child accidentally, and how they just, how do you move on from that? Of course, there's all the consequences that go with that, but you you need to cling to this truth that nobody dies before their time. And nobody lives longer than the time God has assigned to them. Let me read that verse again for you Psalm 139, verse 16. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In other words, you knew me before I was even made. In your book were written, every one of them... I mean, we don't really speak like this. The Hebrew does it that way, and the English translates it in this order because the emphasis is so important in the Hebrew. In your book were written. There's a permanence there. God doesn't write in pencil. We write in pencil. He writes in ink. And in your book, in your day planner, was written what? What was written? Every one of them, the days that were formed for me. I was unformed, and you saw my unformed substance... My days were already formed. Isn't that amazing? I wasn't even in existence yet, and you had already written in your day planner, born on this day, graduate this day, marry this person, have these kids, go through these trials, these tragedies, these joys, these blessings, these difficulties, these sins that he will commit, these, uh, the confession, the repentance, all of that's all written out in ink, the day that you die, And the reason it's so long is because you made good diet choices over here, but those diet choices were already written in. Everything's already written in. They were formed for me when as yet there were none of them, before this even started. It's amazing. No one can add a single day of life to their lifespan. Jesus said as much. Remember that? Uh, Matthew 6, 27. He says, which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to a span of life? Implied answer, no one. That's Matthew six twenty-seven. You can't even add one hour to your life. It's, it's determined already. Matthew ten twenty-nine: Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. Not even an animal dies without God say-so. So when your gerbil goes missing... When you get home and your goldfish is floating upside down. When your bunny gets eaten by your dog. It's all the circle of life. God has decided all of that. You can comfort your children. It's already written. That gerbil was going down and that's just it. <laughs> but even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore. Are you, you are of more value than many sparrows. So, it's a lesser to the greater. If God is so concerned with animals, sparrows, you don't even have, they don't even belong to anyone. They don't even have a name. God's looking after them. He feeds them and he lets them die. And if he's doing that with the little things that really don't matter, what about you? Do you matter more to God or less to God than a sparrow? Yeah, I mean, Jesus just says it like it's axiomatic. Of course more. So, do you think he's less involved or more involved with your sickness and suffering and death? He's more involved. He's perfectly involved. So, disobeying God, listen to this disobeying God to increase your chances of safety, security, health, and longevity don't work. It misunderstands sovereignty. Disobeying God to increase your chances of any kind of blessing misunderstands sovereignty. You cannot outrun sovereignty. Just ask Jonah. You cannot outrun sovereignty. You've heard of the long arm of the law. Wherever you go, the law will find you. God's arm is longer. This is the arm of God's sovereignty, and you cannot outrun it. It didn't work for Jonah. It didn't work for Elimelech. So just two thoughts I want to leave you with. First, under what circumstances would you move outside of God's will? What would it take? What trial, what length of trial would it take to make you doubt God's sovereignty? So I keep using this word, and I haven't defined it. um, Let me just define sovereignty for you, just briefly. Sovereignty means that God is sovereign, He's in control, He's the king, and He decides. That's what it means to be sovereign. There's no parliament, there's no voting, there's no democracy. There's, it's, sovereign means you're in charge. So, when we talk about the doctrine of God's sovereignty, it's the doctrine the kingliness of the king, the powerfulness of the, the potentate. He, he decides and He makes it happen. And there's nothing we can do about it. And that is a doctrine taught throughout Scripture. I mean, you can start on page one and just read. He makes what he does. He chooses who he chooses. He does what he does. The nations have an uproar, Psalm 2 tells us, and he just laughs at them. Really? That's sovereignty. So when God says, it's your time, there's the only person you can talk to about that is God. And we actually have a case of that in Scripture, don't we? We have it where um, uh, Hezekiah, Isaiah comes to Hezekiah and says, You're going to die. Put your house in order. And Hezekiah just begs God for more life. And God grants him another 10 years. And guess what he does during that time? Undoes his entire legacy. He's like the best king Israel's had, except for the last 10 years of his life. And so the lesson we learn from that is, just when God says go, just go. Just go. Don't ask for more time. You can only mess it up. If you're doing well, quit while you're ahead, you know. That's a different sermon. And you might say, well, how do I know that God's called me here to a place, to a job? <sighs> My wife's giggling. We, we wrestled with this. I think pastors struggle with this maybe a, a little bit more than other secular jobs. You understand that, you know, if you're a Whatever, you're, you're an architect at one firm and then another firm offers you more money. There's nothing immoral about leaving one firm and moving to another, right? But it's different with pastors because pastors, I, th- I think most of us feel a strong connection calling to the people that we're shepherding. It's not a job. It's a, it's a calling. And so how do you decide when you move? Especially to countries. Missionaries get called. They feel called to a country and they move to like, you know, Papua New Guinea, and then after 10 years there they decide I wanna go back to the states where they have like running water and medicine <laughs> and education for my kids or whatever and then they move back and people are like, oh, well, you know, they've abandoned their calling. Well, why don't you go to Papua New Guinea before you make that statement, you know? So there's, there's a lot of like charged emotion in this question sometimes. So how do you know? Well, the, if you were an Israelite living in the, the dispensation of the law of Moses, you knew you had to stay in Israel. You knew. We don't know. In fact, Jesus told his disciples to leave Israel and go to the ends of the earth and take the gospel. So from there we get a hint that if the reason you're moving somewhere is for the glory of God, the expansion of the gospel, that's, that's good. In fact, I would say that's preferable even if it means moving to a less safe environment. We tend to think of how do I know if God's called me here? What's the safest place where I'm going to make the most money, you know, have the most comfort, the most security, most stability, for my family, of course. I mean, I would suffer, but I don't want to make my kids suffer. And so I'll choose that over the dangerous and the difficult and the, the discomfort. And that's just not the way Christians should think. Because you are no more safe and no less safe if you are in God's will. When you are in God's will, you're pleasing Him, you're worshiping Him, you're feeling fulfilled in that. And the trial that you're trying to avoid, if it's written in ink already, it's coming. And you can't leave it. You can't avoid it. You can't escape it. So don't even try. So how do you know? Well, are you sinning? If you're not sinning, that's a good first start if you if you are sinning you know you're stepping outside of god's will so if you fear I, i said i'd leave you with two thoughts the first was that one under what circumstance would you move out of god's will and hopefully the answer is no circumstance i will always be in god's will i will always make sure i'm not sinning the second one is what life choices do you make out of fear for your safety or for your children's safety or for your security or your financial security Put another way, what decisions do you make daily based on your lack of faith in God's sovereignty? This is something we had to deal with a lot in South Africa because the crime rate is so high, the violent crime rate. There were a number of people in our church that had been hijacked at gunpoint. A number of people in our church had had intruders come into their house at night, a pastor down the road. He and his wife had been tied up while people robbed their house. They were neighbors of ours that were robbed where the husband and wife climbed up on the roof. They had no children, they climbed up on the roof and waited while people robbed their house because they saw the guns. I mean, this was operation normal in South Africa. And so, we had people making decisions all the time. I'm going to move to this place because it's safer. I'm going to leave, I'm going to go there because it's safer, it's safer. And you can't blame anyone like that. I mean, it's terrible to live in those circumstances. But what we had to teach each other, what I hope we all learn, so you can't outrun God's sovereignty you're safe if God wants you to be safe and if it's your time to be robbed or to be hurt it's happening and if it's your time to die it's happening and there's nothing you can do about it and that shouldn't make you more fearful that should make you less fearful you should have the comfort of knowing that God is with me and if God is with me who can be against me Romans eight thirty one. what shall we say then to these things if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? If God's willing to, to give up his son to rescue us from what's actually dangerous for us, our sin, won't he give us everything else that we need? Of course he will. I remember John Piper said, you know, so John Piper, is, uh, he was a pastor in... Minnesota, and his church in the Twin Cities was in the inner city. And they had a requirement for anyone in their staff had to live within a certain radius of the church that put them in the inner city. So it was a, a dangerous area to live, relatively. Not like Africa, but you know, danger, the Twin Cities dangerous. dangerous. Um, and so he said when he would hire pastors to come and, and staff, and he would interview them, he said sometimes a person would sit down, and the first question they would have is, this requirement to live here in the inner city—I mean, I've got little kids. It's a bad neighborhood. Is it safe? You can imagine John Piper when he's telling the story. He's like, "Is it safe? Good night." You know, that's how he cusses. Good night. Does that have to be your first question? <laughs> I mean, it's a—it's gra- a great response. Why is your first concern—is it safe? Why isn't your first concern, is this God's will? You want the job, you want to work here, you want to be on staff, are these the people that God's calling to you? This doesn't matter if it's safe. So ask yourself this Is God in control? If you're making daily decisions based on the fear that you have, I don't want my children to be hurt, I don't want my children to be put in danger, I don't want my children to have to go through this, I don't want my wife to have to go through this, I don't want to have to go through this. Ask yourself this Is God in control? Do you believe that with every fiber of your being? He is, is he sovereign? And I think you can read any page in the Bible and say, check, I, I must believe that he's sovereign. Second question, is he good? Or is he like moody and capricious and just likes to mess with people? Go read the Bible and, and figure it out. You're going to figure out he's sovereign and he's good. And then ask yourself this, does he know me? In my particular situation, you won't believe how many counseling appointments start with, I know what the Bible says, but you don't know my husband. (laughs) You don't know my boss. You don't know the school my kids go to. No, 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 no. It doesn't matter if I know. Does God know? Is he sovereign? Is he good? Does he know? And then one more question. Does he care? Of course he cares and if he's sovereign, and he's in control, and if he's good, and if he knows, and if he cares. Why are we still talking? What are you afraid about? Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be known of God. And the peace of God that surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Is that true or is it not? It's true. Well, I told you, i would tell you what happened with Jane Pointer and her finger. She decided to leave. The team decided she needed to leave the biosphere. And so she left the biosphere and she had the surgery and she had her finger attached and everything was fine. And you know what? The journalists who were watching all of this didn't have a problem with that. No, nobody thought that was a bad decision. It was what happened when Jane Pointer returned to the biosphere that caused a stir. Just like what happened when Naomi returned to the biosphere of Bethlehem. And if you want to know what happened there, come back next week. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this reminder that you are sovereign and in control of all things. We are a fearful people at times, Lord. We we fear for our physical safety. We we fear for our emotional well-being. We fear for our economic stability and all of these things are so trivial compared to the real danger that's out there for our souls. And yet you have sent your son to live and to die and to conquer death, to keep our souls safe for all eternity. Will you not give us what we need? Will you not keep us safe to do your will? I thank you, Lord, for the provisions that you have given us and I pray that you'd help us to be good stewards of those provisions and the safety that you've given us, that we would share the gospel, because we live in a country that allows that. We don't have to fear reprisal. I pray that you'd help us to be faithful with those resources, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.